For several years, the Government Accountability Office has issued recommendations for reforming the Capitol Police. My next guest has compiled all of these studies and recommendations and came up with a few reform ideas of his own. Taylor Swift is a senior policy advisor with Demand Progress, and he joins me now. Mr. Swift, good to have you with us. Yeah, thanks so much, Tom. It's great to be here. Now, Demand Progress focuses on transparency and accountability primarily in the legislative branch of the government, fair to say. So this is why you decided to focus on the Capitol Police, which is one of those agencies of Congress. Yes, absolutely. Um, Given that, you know, over the past two and a half years, there has been quite a large call to have the Capitol Police reform both its internal and public facing operations, given the massive failures from the January 6th attack on the Capitol. We thought that it was of paramount importance to kind of examine where the Capitol Police has been putting its resources and how it's been meeting its congressional directives since the January 6, 2021 attack. And rather than relate what happened on January 6th, which has been pretty well covered ground, what are the fundamental flaws in management of the Capitol Police that gave rise to that situation? And it's not the only situation they've had some trouble with. Yeah, that's a great question. So To kind of put it in perspective, the Capitol Police continues to grow both from a scope perspective, but then also within its budget. Over the past five years, their budget has grown 70 percent. It's upwards to around $800 million or 13 percent of the entire legislative branch appropriations subcommittee. So that is a pretty sizable chunk, right? That goes to protect the Capitol, protect members, uh, the public that comes into the Capitol all the time. It's a really, 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 really important task. But as we saw on January 6th, there was leadership and intelligence gathering failures that left them woefully unprepared. And, you know, we were so, so, so close to catastrophe. It could have been even worse than it already was. And so since those events, there have been numerous congressional directives, both from committees of jurisdiction and then other legislative branch agencies like the Government Accountability Office, to kind of reform the operations of not only the Capitol Police internally, but then the United States Capitol Police Board, which is the oversight structure that kind of manages the Capitol Police from afar. Unfortunately, the structure of the board itself is it's kind of rampant with conflict of interest because, you know, they have the ability to hire and fire the inspector general, but the Capitol Police Board also has the Capitol Police chief serve as an ex officio member. So there is kind of this blurred, you know, inherent conflict there. And we're kind of seeing that as some of the data in our report suggests, and I'd love to get into it. Yes. And there's been a series of chiefs and they seem to have been unable to effectuate, I guess, meaningful change fair to say? Well, there has been some meaningful change. You know, we've actually seen a uptick in the resources available for rank and file officers. They've created a wellness center. They've um, reformed overtime pay provisions. They're starting to put more uh, resources into combating diversity issues and combating bias issues and training, um, things like that. But unfortunately, there are still a lot of outstanding issues within the department that quite frankly, the public doesn't really know about. And so some of those come from those directives from Congress directly. And then some of them do come from the Government Accountability Office. They deal with like emergency preparedness processes around how decisions are made, both in a emergency management perspective, but then also regular day to day. And then there's also continuing ongoing issues. And this was even an issue before the January 6th attack, 
information sharing. The Capitol Police has been known for over a decade for being notoriously opaque, and they have kept reporters and the public and even at times congressional appropriators who fund the agency in the dark about their operations. And so that kind of leads us to where we are today. There have been some improvements, but they're still woefully behind where they should be. We're speaking with Taylor Swift. He's a senior policy advisor with Demand Progress. And so this idea of even releasing IG reports, for example, they don't release those to the public. And that's pretty much at variance with almost every other IG in the government. You nailed it. So two weeks ago, there was actually a Capitol Police Inspector General hearing before the House Committee on Appropriations. And the new IG, Mr. Russo, who was appointed in January, briefly mentioned that since the IG's inception in the middle 2000s, there have been 650 Inspector General reports dealing with the Capitol Police. Unfortunately, to date, there have only been four released to the public, which is rather astonishing. And to make matters worse, those four have all been released within the last four months. So up until April of this year, there were no public IG reports released to the public. All right. So transparency, leadership, intelligence gathering, preparedness and decision making in situations, what do they need to do? I mean, what reforms are undone that you feel are most urgent that they take on? Absolutely. So one of our biggest recommendations actually echoes what congressional appropriators have been asking of the department for quite some time, for three years now. And that's actually to establish a Freedom of Information Act-like process. A lot of people don't know that most departments, most um, metropolitan police departments around the country have FOIA. It allows the public and journalists and others to ask for that information. Well, since the United States Capitol Police is technically under the legislative branch, they aren't subject to FOIA. And so several years ago, the congressional appropriators mandated that the Capitol Police develop this process. And last week during the Capitol Police board hearing, which, by the way, was the first Capitol Police board hearing since the end of World War II, it was the first one in almost 80 years, the Capitol Police chief mentioned in his written testimony that they are still working on this process. Unfortunately, congressional appropriators have been asking this for going on three years now. So they're kind of dragging their feet. So that's step one. We've already talked about the lack of transparency around inspector general reports. The board and the department has been working with the IG's office to create a more transparent process to publicly release these reports. But unfortunately, we don't know what that process looks like. There isn't a written guideline that is published on its website. So we really don't know how that works. And then um, the board meeting minutes. So this this Capitol Police Board, they, they meet regularly. They, they don't really meet with external or public stakeholders. They do meet with congressional stakeholders, which is great. But those meeting minutes are not published. We do not have access to what goes on in these meetings, even if it's not highly classified or sensitive information. There isn't really a record of what is going on. So we don't really know what's being done. And then to that point, many metropolitan police departments all over the country have civilian oversight boards. It would be great if the Capitol Police and congressional appropriators and other committees of jurisdiction would look to develop some sort of public you know, stakeholder or oversight board so that there can just be more sunlight, so that there can just be more sure. communication to both the public, but then also the folks that live around the Capitol so that people know what's kind of going on. 
And just what about some of the operational issues? Those are all transparency, accountability, financial management, and these kinds of things, which are foundational. But are they good at training policemen to do police duty? Are they getting better at intelligence gathering and straightening out a command and control system so that when a January 6th type event happens, they know what to do and everyone's trained to know what to do? So that is a fantastic question. It's kind of up in the air right now. So several of the GAO recommendations that have been made over the past several years do deal with these processes and these training pieces. Unfortunately, up until this point, there have been 11 total recommendations. The United States Capitol Police has only complied with two of them. So those open recommendations kind of leave this gap in security and safety. And We just want to make sure that the Capitol Police, given their ballooning resources, are making sure that Capitol Police are trained the right way, that the Capitol is secure, and that it's being done correctly. And so that is, I guess, one of the reasons why we wanted to publish this report is that it's been two and a half years since this colossal failure at the leadership level and and the intelligence level. God forbid something like this ever happens again, but we want to make sure that the Capitol Police are being transparent and honest about how they're making these reforms so that they're doing it the right way, especially since their budget has gone up basically 70 percent since January 6, 2021. Taylor Swift is a senior policy advisor with Demand Progress. Thanks so much for joining me. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role, even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people. uh, And that's what I do. And I I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really 
you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always make sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, And I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching that vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely them. It's not just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chance that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, the, Describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I I trust God 
even in this situation as a union leader, because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed, uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you you, you just learn those things, and that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes, right? yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. You, yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you're asking for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can it's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. 
Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.